Uh, now let's start the sermon. How's that sound? You guys, uh, you guys, I get to preach this morning, and you guys have to listen to me. So that's, those are the two, the two things you're, you're forced to. So um, we are in a series here at OCEC. We started a, uh, several weeks ago in the book of Revelation. And I know that when I say the word revelation, and when we start talking about the book of Revelation, there's kind of, from my experience, there's kind of two camps of people. There's the camp of people that get a little bit too excited about the fact that we're talking about revelation. And we all have that friend, right? We all have that friend who's a little bit too into it. And it's like, you know, we're going through, and I've, I've got, as soon as I say revelation, they get their charts out. And they just start like, okay, well, I say, I read in the news that this happened over here, and then this is going on over here, and then this, if you connect this to this verse and this over here, and then we're going to take it into the Greek, and I'm going to turn it into letters, and then the letters are going to be numbers, and the numbers mean this. And you're kind of like, your mind just gets a little bit, you, your eyes glaze over, right? Um, we all have that one friend. We also have the one friend who is just terrified of the book of Revelation, like, it is complicated. It's weird. There's a lot going on in it. Who is this? What is all this imagery happening? There's like scrolls and bowls of wrath. And are we really going to hear a trumpet? And I don't understand how this is all going to work. We've got like this big beast and then there's this other person. And then who is this? Who is this other? Like who's this lady that we're talking about? So mean. Like there's this, you know, person that we're calling uh, the, the harlot over and over and over again, and it's like, what is going on here? Now, Revelation is one of those books that can really sort of polarize people and can create a lot of confusion and can create a lot of, of difficulty for us as interpreters. I've, I've, seen, um, I've seen it called the, most, uh, the strangest and most dangerous book of the Bible. And so... It's really important, one, that we read it, and two, that we read it well, and that we read Revelation responsibly. And so our goal is, as we go through this series, is not only to, to unpack the book of Revelation for us as a church here in the 21st century, but to give us a little bit of a framework for how you guys and how we can continue to read it and read it responsibly and in a way that continues to speak to the church today. So we're going to be kind of, as we go through this series, we're going to give some, some frameworks for how we're, going to, how we're going to approach this. So for the last several weeks, what we've been doing is we've been going through the beginning of this book. And what we're going to kind of see as we, uh, as we deal with the book of Revelation is that there's really one major theme that everything is going to keep coming back to, and it's the name of our series, God Wins. Satan loses, Caesar loses, God wins, and so persevere. That's like kind of the book of Revelation in a nutshell. And everything we're going we're gonna to read is going to point to that. And the whole point, purpose of this book is to encourage followers of Jesus to continue following Jesus even when the world falls apart. So the book starts off with the author, John, kind of explaining a little bit about his situation and how he was on the island of Patmos, he was in the spirit one day, and the Lord gave him a vision. And in that vision, he sees Jesus, and at the beginning of the book, Jesus says to him, I want you to write down these letters that I'm about to sort of dictate to you. I'm going to tell you some stuff. 
I'm going to dictate some letters, and they're going to go out to seven churches that are kind of in the area around Asia Minor, which was a Roman province at the time, kind of surrounding the Mediterranean. Modern-day Turkey is kind of in that area, uh, and we've got some other areas as well. And I'm going to, I'm going to dictate these letters to you, and they're going to be really important for these churches to understand. One of the things that keeps coming up through the book of Revelation is this number, seven. We've got seven letters, we've got seven bowls, we've got seven, uh, seven bowls of wrath, we've got seven trumpets, there's seven seals, there's uh, uh, seven diadems or like crowns on the head of this, this, uh, this creature, and there's all this kind of stuff that's going on. And the, the idea of the number seven, and you see it in the Old Testament, is this number of like perfection or this number of completion, completeness. So just as God made the earth in seven days, uh, so we see the number seven kind of coming up over and over again. So as we read these letters, there's seven letters to seven separate churches, and they, each church had kind of their own situation at the time and all that kind of stuff, but the seven is kind of a signal to us as readers that this is not just seven individual letters to seven individual churches, but these are letters that continue to speak to the church more broadly today. So I'm going to read this whole letter. This is to a church, uh, the Church of Philadelphia, which, you know, Pennsylvania, right? Uh, no, Philadelphia was a province uh, or a town that was kind of a trade city, which is in modern-day Turkey, uh, kind of on the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and we are going to read this, and then we're going to kind of go back through, and we're going to look at it a little bit more closely. So let's read. Here's what the word says. Revelation 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus says to John, To the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, we'll come back to that, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown." To the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I want us to notice something right out of the gate about this letter. It's completely positive about this church. So until this point, we've only had one other letter in this kind of series of seven letters that has been totally positive, and this letter is the second one. 
In each of the other letters, Jesus, what he'll say to the church is like, I know your deeds. And he'll say something like, oh, you know, congratulations, you've been doing well in this area. And then there's the word but. But I have this against you. But here's a problem. And in this letter, there's no but, which I find really interesting. There's no qualifications. There's no command to change their behavior or their theology or their thinking. This letter is encouraging through and through. It kind of breaks form a little bit. And when you're reading something along in the Bible and you're seeing how it kind of comes along and, it's, and this is sort of the way that it goes and you read it over and over again and you're like, okay, well, this is sort of the format that I'm looking at and I see this format over and over and this passage and I see this format in this passage and I see this format in this passage and this passage looks similar, but it's a little bit different. That's like, that's a clue to us. The author's doing something to try and catch our attention. Okay, there's a change here. And the change is that this is something that is positive. This is the kind of letter that you would want to get from Jesus, right? If Jesus sent a letter to OCEC today, I would want it to be positive and only positive, right? Like, all right, Lord, thank you. We're doing well. Let's keep doing what we're doing. And here's the thing is Jesus in his ministry, if you read the gospels, Jesus does not really mince words. He doesn't waste his breath, If he had something critical or challenging to say to the community at Philadelphia, he would have. So let's take a closer look, and we're going to kind of look through this here a little bit, one at a time. Maybe not one verse at a time. We'll take a couple verses at a time, all right? So here we go. Verse 7. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So right out of the gate, we have this interesting image that can be a little bit confusing, right? You're like, what is going on with this key of David thing? How are, what is this, what what are these vocabulary words? So let's just kind of break it down a little bit, all right? So start with this. He says that he is holy. Jesus calls himself holy. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see the word holy often, um, I, I don't think that I quite have a grasp on like what, what exactly does this word holy mean? Does it mean that he's like a really good person? I think, you know, we think of like a holy person, right? As being someone who is, I don't know, maybe admirable in some way, right? In this case, in, throughout the Bible, most of the time when you see the word holy, what it really means is something that's like set apart, for a special use, okay? Something that's set apart for something, for for a special purpose. So people can be holy. The priests were considered holy in the Old Testament. There were others that were considered holy. And also things, objects can be holy. So if you read about how uh, the construction of the temple in in the Old Testament was done, they would consider certain objects to be holy. They were set apart specifically for temple worship and that alone. They were for the purposes of God. They were special. They were holy. They weren't to be used for anything that was unholy. And by unholy, it doesn't necessarily mean bad. It just means like mundane, like everyday use. So the knives and the forks and all the stuff that they would use to prepare the stuff for the sacrifices, those were holy. You're not going to take those knives and forks home, and you're not going to chop carrots and put them in your stew, okay? They're special. 
And in the same way, Jesus calls himself holy. He is set apart. He's different. He is special. He's completely devoted to the purposes of God. On top of that, then he calls himself true, holy and true. Now, this is not true in the sense that like a fact is true, right? You have a fact, two plus two equals four. That's true. Yes? Please tell me that that's true. (laughs) Two plus two is four. That's a true fact. But what about when a person is true? Or when something that I experienced was true. This has to do with being trustworthy, in alignment with what should be. So one of the things that that um, one of the things that I have gotten into in the last several years is woodworking, and one of the things that you deal with in woodworking is, well, is this board is this board true or not? Like, if I'm going to use this board in my project, it had better be true. So what I do is I take the board, and I kind of sight down the edge of it, you know? You're looking like this, and you try and see. And you find this a lot when you try and buy lumber at Home Depot, okay? You walk into the, you walk in, you're like, I just need a two-by-four. That's all I need. So I walk into Home Depot, and I pick up a two-by-four, and I look at it, and I'm sighting down the edge, and it goes like this. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm not going to use that board. It's not true. It's not accurate to what it should be, which is straight, right? And this is not, I'm not trying to trivialize Jesus and say that he's a two by four, but what I'm saying is that Jesus is exactly as he should be. He's what we expect of someone who is going to be trustworthy. What he says he will do, he will do. So Jesus in this letter is telling this church Listen to my words because of my character, because of who I am, because of my qualities. And then we get this really kind of strange metaphor. He holds the key of David. Now, this is a great example of something that we see all over the book of Revelation, which is the author, John, He is so steeped in, like marinated in the Hebrew Bible and the way that the Old Testament is written that he can't help but utilize these kinds of images throughout the text. So as we're reading Revelation, what we're going to see is that John is going to make these references to the Old Testament constantly. Like, we're going to have to, you can barely go two or three verses without something significant that's referencing back to something in the Old Testament. And John also assumes that his audience understands some of these things. So he's going to say, like, okay, well, he's going to make this, this reference and then just kind of, like, move on. And we're sitting here going, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What was that all about, John? The key is this. The best way for us to understand Revelation better, in my opinion, the best way for us to understand Revelation better is for us to understand the Hebrew Bible better, understand our Old Testament a little bit better. Because because John is so steeped in this culture and in this narrative and in all the different passages of the Old Testament, he's going to use those images and he's going to talk about those things in ways that are going to, if we can understand kind of where he's coming from, it's going to help us 
get what he's saying a little bit more. So when Jesus says something like this in this letter, I'm the one who holds the key of David, I mean, the word David right there, right, that should flash us back to King David, yes, in the Old Testament. And on top of that, this is actually a very specific passage in the Old Testament. This is actually from the book of Isaiah. So you don't necessarily have to turn there, but this is actually referencing back to a passage in Isaiah chapter 22. And kind of what's going on at the time is the people of Israel have been disobedient, and God is telling them that these foreign invaders are going to come in and crush them because of their disobedience, and they're going to get taken into exile. So that's like a lot of what's happening in the book of Isaiah. So the prophet Isaiah is, is speaking the words of God to the people, and he is saying, listen up, here's what's going on. Now, through Isaiah, God has a very specific message for a guy who was what's called like the steward of the house. His name was Shebna. So, if you guys are looking for baby names, that's a good one. (laughs) Shebna, yeah. So, this guy, Shebna, was the steward over the household of David, over David's sort of like uh, uh, reign, okay, over his household. When you're the steward of the house, you have a lot of responsibility, You have to deal with the finances. You have to deal with all the different political stuff that's going on within the household. You have to determine who you're going to be hospitable to, who you're not going to be hospitable to. It's not just managing like a home. It's managing a people, a family, a group. Okay? And here's what he says to Shebna. You have not done a good job, so I'm removing you. I'm removing you from your authority, from your position. And then he says this, I'm going to judge you, and in that day, I will summon my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. There's some other good baby names for you guys. And he's, so he's speaking directly to Jeff, uh, Jebna, and he says, I will clothe him with your robe. To be clothed in a robe in the Old Testament usually symbolizes you've been given authority, Okay? Joseph was clothed in a robe after he was given uh, his, his position in Pharaoh's government. Okay? So, I will clothe him with your robe, and I will fasten your sash around him. And this is a sash in the sense of like, like the Miss America sash is like, hey, I'm Miss America, check it out. I won. Okay, I'm in charge here. You've got your little sash. And the, like, the imagery is very similar here. Okay, fasten your sash around him, and I'm going to hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder, and here it is, the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So you see how John right here, or I guess Jesus, John giving the words of Jesus, okay, is saying, he's lifting this directly out of the book of Isaiah, and he's plopping it right here. And he's taking this verse that's talking about Eliakim, who lived in like 700 some odd BC, okay, and he's applying it to Jesus who is then speaking authoritatively to the church at Philadelphia. 
He's, this is like some Bible ninja stuff, you know? Like, he's, he's an interpretive Jedi, is what I'm going to say. He places on his shoulder the key to the house of David. When someone holds the keys to the house, we read in this passage, they have the power to what, I mean, what's literally the power of a key? It locks and unlocks a door, right? You get to determine, you get to determine who's in and who's out. You get to figure out who you're going to open the door to and who you're going to shut the door to. You get to figure out who's going to receive the hospitality of your home and who isn't. So in Revelation, Jesus is referred to as holding the key of David, and John's saying that he has the power and the authority to determine who's in and who's out, or who gets hospitality and who doesn't. So here's our kind of our main big point here. Jesus is the one who has the power to create and sustain the people of God. The image that's given about Eliakim here is that he will be a father to the people of Jerusalem. He's giving them nurture and care and protection. And he's also determining who, you know, the comings and goings of the people. He's got the power and the authority. He's got the keys. You guys remember the first time you got the car keys as a 16-year-old? The power, right? The, like, the authority. I don't know. I, when my mom handed me the keys for the first time, hey, can you go to the grocery store? I was like, yes, absolutely. I will go to the grocery store. Yes, I will go pick up my sister from school. I want to just drive the car. Like, let me just, you know, let me go do all the errands for you. And then she was like, oh, thank goodness. I get to stay home and don't have to run errands. But think about that. There's, there's a responsibility. There's a weight there. There's an authority there. And, you know, several weeks into my first uh, experiences driving the car, I promptly decided to lock my keys in the car when I was at the store. That was fun. So I had to have somebody else with keys come out because I'd lost my authority there. It was <laughs> Anyway, think about that. Jesus has the responsibility, the power, the authority, the ability to manage the household. It's his responsibility. He's the boss. He's in charge. Moving on, this is what he says to the people. I know your deeds. Now, when you hear Jesus say those words to you without anything else, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get a little bit nervous. <laughs> you know my what? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? I know your deeds. In this case, it's positive, so let's, you know, let's keep going. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Just think about that for a second. The community at Philadelphia seems, based on this, to have been un under some kind of pressure. And we're going to read a little bit more about that later. And we, you know, we read it at the beginning. The, the community was under some kind of pressure to deny Jesus, to stop what they were doing, 
Now, the, the group of Christians in Philadelphia probably was actually composed of mostly Jews, mostly Jewish believers who had came to, who'd come to faith in the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. And there was another group of Jews in the town that were part of a synagogue in the city that seems to be putting pressure on the Christians here. So look at what he says next. Um, there we go. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, we're, we'll talk about that, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I'll make them come and fall at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So what's going on here is that the people have been under some kind of pressure. It would have been some social pressure. It would have been some family pressure. More than likely, you have one person in the family who's like, Jesus is the Messiah. And there's some other people in the family who are like, no, he's not. What are you talking about? We've been Jews for generations. Why would we change what we, want to, what we believe now? They have friends, they have neighbors, they've got family members who've been doing everything in their power to stop these Christians from doing what they're doing, from worshiping Jesus, trying to accuse them of following a false god, denying the one true faith, because the one true faith is Judaism. What are you guys doing? You're not worshiping the right person. Jesus was a blasphemer. He claimed to be God, but we know there's only one God. Come on, guys. They've been trying to undermine their trustworthiness in the sight of the other members of their community. But Jesus has used his authority to place before them an open door. Now, often when we think of doors, when like there's an open door sort of in our, in our, in our understanding, and especially in, in with our English phrases, when you have an open door, we often think of that as like an opportunity, right? Oh, well, God opened a door for me, right? He's, he's opened a door for me in this place, and I'm going to walk through that. And that's a fine metaphor. We can use that metaphor. But I don't know that that's exactly what's going on here. I think really, if we kind of look at this in line with authority and holding the keys, is when you open the door to someone, you're welcoming them in. You're not saying you need to go out and do something. You're opening up the door and saying, come on in. Welcome to the house. Jesus has welcomed the people at Philadelphia into his house. And no one else has the authority to revoke that invitation. Jesus has said, I'm opening the door to you guys. Welcome in. And the people that are trying to shut that door in your face, they don't get to. I get to determine if you're in. And you're in. And notice something here. Jesus says something that I think is so important. He says, I know that you have little strength. Yet, you have kept my word and not denied my name. Here's the point. It doesn't take personal power to persevere. I really wanted the alliteration there, you know, personal power and persevere, right? It doesn't require personal power to persevere. The people that Jesus is talking to in this letter are not the power brokers in their community. The majority of, like I said, the majority of the believing community here were probably Jewish believers. And not only that, but they, so, so the Jewish community at large in Philadelphia was a, a very small minority in the community. So you have a minority of a minority community within a larger city that's like a trade center, and there's a bunch of stuff going on here. There's lots of different kind of cultures that are mixing in this area. 
They were a minority among a minority group. They had little to no political, social, or financial power in the city. They probably didn't hold positions of authority in government. They probably had little influence over the broader culture. They regularly had to suffer through their voices being silenced or ignored. And yet, they endured. They endured in spite of the fact that they didn't have like this power structure that they could grab onto to give them strength. They didn't have it. What did they have? They had Jesus. So Jesus explains what's going to happen next, and here's what he says. I'll make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews but are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, when we see the phrase synagogue of Satan, that's like, whoa, back up there. (laughs) Back up, Jesus. What are you talking about here? What's happening? Synagogue of Satan. Is this a synagogue where they're saying, hey, let's worship Satan. He's pretty great. No, it was not. Um, This is probably, what's going on here, this is probably a play off of the Greek word, which is actually a Greek version of the Hebrew word, Satan, ha-Satan, the Satan, okay? Which literally just means accuser. It's actually used of people in the Old Testament in a couple of places, this word. It's not used of like uh, the, the being that we would consider to be Satan with a capital S. It's used also of people who are coming to somebody else and accusing them of wrongdoing. Okay? So in this case, you have this, this group of people that are part of a synagogue that are accusing the Christians of wrongdoing. You're not worshiping the correct God. You're not doing the right thing. You guys are stirring up trouble for all of us, and this is not good. You need to repent and come back, okay? So we're not looking for like a literal synagogue that worships Satan in the place of Philadelphia. We're looking for a group of people who were part of a synagogue who were pointing at the Christians and were saying, you guys have it wrong. This is not good. You need to stop what you're doing deny Jesus, and come back into the fold, okay? So we're not dealing with a literal Satan-worshipping synagogue. We are dealing with a group of people who are playing into the hands of Satan with a capital S by trying to get Christians to deny their faith and walk away. Does that make sense? Now, moving on, he says, I'm going to make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. This is one of those images that is so interesting to me. The people that were accusing the Christians in this city are at some point going to come because of Jesus, and they're going to come, and they're going to fall down at their feet, and they're going to say, oh, Jesus, Jesus has loved you guys. He is who he says he is. He is who you say he is. Oh my goodness. This is about recognition. It's not necessarily about like subservience or like anything that's like weird, like they're going to be like the Christian's servants from now on or something like that. It's not about that. It's about recognition. It's about them recognizing two things. One, that Jesus has actually loved these Christians 
to the point where they're willing to change everything about their, their life and follow him. And two, they recognized that they were in the wrong for trying to stop these Christians from doing what they were doing. There's a recognition here. And who is the one who makes them do it? Jesus. It's not about the group of Christians in Philadelphia forcing them to recognize it. Shaking them and saying, wake up. No. Jesus has the power to do this and he promises to do so. Jesus has them taken care of. It's not their own strength. And I think this is a concept, this idea that it is not through our own strength that, that like people who oppose us will recognize us and all this kind of stuff. This is kind of an idea that is really hard for a lot of us to grasp, especially in our current context where we're part of the church in America in 2023, and it's, it's difficult for us to understand this because evangelical Christians have historically held a tremendous amount of power for a long time. We've held a tremendous amount of political, social, and economic power in our country and in the West in general. Our institutions, our laws, our social norms, the way that society is shaped has been shaped by evangelical Christians with strength. We have a lot of strength in our current culture. And what we're seeing in many ways is that there's in some ways a loss of that power occurring and that freaks us out. Like, oh my gosh, you mean to tell me that I don't get to call the shots as much anymore. Not that I don't get to call the shots at all anymore, it's I don't get to call the shots as much anymore. That loss of power is tremendously painful for us as, as a culture, as like an evangelical Christian culture. It's painful. And so I recognize that. But here's the encouragement from this letter. These Philadelphians had none of that. None. And yet, they endured, and they followed Jesus. They were congratulated by Jesus for that. They were given praise for that. You have little strength, but you have not denied my, you, have, you kept my word, and you haven't denied my name. That's a tremendous challenge, I think, for many of us in this room. It's a challenge. What will we do if we lose our power. What will we do in the eventuality that the influence that we once had over the broader culture and the strength that we once had in our broader context goes away? Will we try and gain that power back? And in so doing, deny the name of Jesus or attach ourselves to people and to ideologies that are antithetical to the way of Jesus? Or will we lean into the fact that we can be confident that our Savior has loved us and love others as a result? And say, you know what, that power stuff, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter in the end because guess what? We are not the ones who endure by our own strength. Jesus 
helps us endure. So it doesn't require our personal power to persevere. It requires Jesus' power. That is the bottom line. If we lost all of our influence and all of our power and all of our economic like prosperity and all of the stuff, all of the social capital that we've gained over the years, if all of that went away tomorrow, we'd be okay. Would it be painful? Yeah. But we'd be okay because guess who has the power? Jesus. And guess who can wield that power in such a way that two things happen? One, the people who love him continue to love him and endure through all of that pain and hardship. And two, others recognize that Jesus has loved those people. That's what we're looking at here. And I think that's the challenge from a letter like this, a letter that's, that's so positive for this church in this context can be a tremendous challenge for us as we sit here today. Moving on, Jesus says this, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. What did they have? Jesus. (laughs) They didn't have much else. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. And the crown here is not like a ruler's crown. You know, King Arthur and he puts the crown on the guy's head and he's like, you're in charge. The crown here is the victor's crown that was given to people who competed in the Olympics and won, who won some sort of like an athletic contest. You've gone through a trial You've been tested. Your strength and endurance and training has been tested to its limit, and you've come out on the other side victorious. That's the crown we're talking about. Hold on to what you have. What is it that they had? Jesus. So that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Think about a pillar for a second. You know? When you look, you know, when you think about all the pictures that you've seen of like the Parthenon or something in, in Greece, and you have all these, these columns that are holding up this giant ceiling, okay? A pillar, it's something that's permanent. It's installed, it's there, it's steady. And in many cases, people would, um, people would in, in this time, if you donated money or you were a very like famous person or something like that sometimes you'd be able to get your name carved into the pillar we just do it ourselves you know we'll just go to the park and carve you know on something on the on a tree or whatever well they're not doing that they're 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 you know it took a considerable amount of effort to carve into these things and so you'd have to you'd have to mean that you were being carved into this thing all right so you'd be a pillar in the house of my god that's what Jesus is saying. He says, never again will they leave it. A pillar can't really go anywhere. If you have a load-bearing pillar and you take it out, what happens? Nothing good, right? So the idea is this. Jesus is saying to these people, you may feel like you don't have a lot of security and stability and all this kind of stuff right now, but what I'm going to do is is as you endure and you continue through this trial and you do the stuff, 
that I have commanded you to do, that is going to give you stability and strength and permanency in my house. Continue to do it. It's an encouragement. It's an encouragement to them. And then he says this, I will write, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming out of heaven from my God. That's a little bit of a foreshadowing, a little bit of preview of what we're going to get at the very end of the letter. And I will also write on them my new name. When you write your name on something, what are you doing? Yeah, you're, you're claiming it as your own. You're claiming that, that thing. I know sometimes, you know, some, some of you maybe, maybe your mom sewed your name into your underwear. You know, we knew it was yours. The bottom line is Jesus is saying to these people, I'm going to claim you as my own. You are mine. I wrote your name on you, uh, my name on you. You belong to me. You belong to my God. You belong to the new Jerusalem, which represents sort of like the family of God, the people of God. You belong to me. So keep going. And he closes with this, like it, ha- like it says in all the other letters, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's the Spirit saying this morning? What's the Spirit saying? It doesn't require personal power to persevere. It requires Jesus' power. Like I said, of all of our ability, of all of our influence, of all of our strength, our relationships, our wealth, our status, we're taken away tomorrow. That wouldn't hinder us one bit in our ability to persevere in following Jesus to the end. Because it wasn't really in our ability in the first place. It wasn't in these guys' ability. It wasn't in their strength. It wasn't in their wealth and their influence and their power and their relationships and all that kind of stuff. How they could strategize and have the most, you know, the most influential moment in their culture. It was simply about continuing in spite of hardship. Loving Jesus and loving their neighbors. Can you imagine a world where Christians, followers of Jesus, cared less about our power and maintaining the status quo and cared more about becoming like him? He said to Paul, when Paul was like, I've got this thing, I've got this thorn, please take it away. Take it away from me, God. This is really hurting. This is not fun. I don't enjoy this. And his response to Paul was, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because my power is made perfect in weakness. We're in the season of Advent. We're thinking about, we're looking forward to, we're anticipating the arrival of Jesus. And how did he arrive? With like 
laser beams and nuclear bombs and, you know, winning a bodybuilding competition, right? No, he arrived as an infant, a tiny, helpless human being who was completely dependent on his mom and completely dependent on others. All of that power, the power of the divine was placed in a vessel that was weak and squishy. (laughs) If that can be true of Jesus, if he could give up all of that and still maintain who he is, we can do the same. What if we did that? What if we were okay with losing some power if it meant that we get to follow Jesus even more closely? Jesus' power is not limited by time or language or culture. It just is. So let's lean into it. What if we were able to endure hardship so much more gracefully because we understood in our bones that it wasn't our own strength that got us through the trials in the first place. If I had to rely on my own strength to get me through every trial that ever came up, I'd lose every time. Let's look to Jesus. His power never fails. And he's calling us to something new. Let's pray.